the Sophos Naked Security Podcast. I'm Anna Brady and I'm here with Sophos experts, Mark Stockley. Hi. Ben Jones. Hello. And Peter McKenzie. Hello. Welcome back, guys. And welcome back to me as well, because it's been two weeks. Did you miss me? Oh, welcome yes, back. Yes, yes, yes. Sorry, yeah, a bit yeah. slow there. <laughs> oh, that's I'm, I'm impressed he managed to wrestle the microphone out of Alice's hand. Oh, I know. <laughs> well, she has already tried to steal it in rehearsals. Um, Peter, as you've only been on the podcast once, do you want to remind people what you do at Sophos? Uh, well, the answer I gave last time was now different. Uh, so I was um, in support dealing with malware escalations. I have just accepted a new role in the managed threat response team in Sophos, which is a new service, uh, which we are in probably launching today, in fact. Uh, this is for where you want uh, some more security experts helping you with your network. So we're monitoring the events on your network and providing advice and help with you. Would you say the podcast has improved your career since you appeared on it? I'm not sure it's Is it related? I mean, that right. seems like, so you had one job, you came on the podcast, and then literally you were given another job. I don't have any data to disprove your theory. Well, look, correlation what? equals causation, Peter, so All right, fair you know, enough, ergo, then. you're welcome. Why yeah. haven't I got a new job then? Maybe he was better. It on was the when Alice was doing it. <laughs> That's so. what it is. Oh. That's what it is. Coming up on today's show, Ben discusses Emitet. It's back. Peter talks about WannaCry, are we in 2017? And Mark talks about another Instagram fish. What have you been up to this week, guys? Well, Peter and I actually run a uh, Tough Mudder at the weekend. Oh, did you? Uh, for charity. Yeah, 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 we did. We did. This, this is where you, uh, this is basically evidence that, that human life has become too easy, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> like if you're, if you're at the point where you're wondering how do you fit, how do you get electric shocks into your run? <laughs> like life is too easy. Yeah. yeah, it's okay. I haven't felt anything since about 2012, so it's absolutely. <laughs> I haven't felt anything since Saturday. That's for sure. <laughs> How did it go? I completed it, and I'm alive. Those were two goals. I wasn't last. Definitely wasn't first. You were ahead of me. That's for sure. <laughs> it was good yeah, fun. It was, it was good really fun. good fun. Good. I couldn't walk on Sunday, but other oh, than that, all good. Stockley, what have you been doing? That's as good as a tough mudder. Uh, I, well, while they were doing that, I was doing a bit of yoga, oh. actually. Really? Yeah. You don't look the yoga type. Have you tried yoga while getting electric shocks? I hear that that's <laughs> I'm happy to help. I've got a taser. <laughs> taser. <laughs> Shall we move on to uh, IT security? Ben, um, Emotet, you wanted to talk about Emotet today, but um, I thought it disappeared. What's going on? Yeah, so it seems that it, it's back. We first saw Emotet back in 2014 when it began life as a banking trojan, which is, is fundamentally a piece of malware that looks to steal the victim's banking credentials. But since then, we've actually seen it evolve into an advanced delivery platform and been associated to, to other attacks as well. So right. more recently, attacks relate, linked to um, TrickBot, for example, and Ryak as well that, that Peter spoke about um, extensively into that sort of targeted attacks like Ryak. Um, back in episode eight. Um, and one of the reasons that, that I wanted to talk about Emotet uh, on the podcast this week is because, in fact, back in sort of mid-June time, um, the Emotet command and control servers actually stopped responding. And it kind of, it just it just went quiet. It yeah. went silent on the, well, on the on attack holiday side. or something. Yeah, exactly that. Summer break, you know. Everyone needs a holiday. Um, very busy. And, so, yeah. and the question then arose thereof of, is this the end of Emotet fundamentally? Um, but it seems that, Alas, no, it's, it's not the case. As, as, as come mid-September, the command and control servers have started responding again. They've started dishing out spam and, and once again, no. 
it seems to be back alive. It's resurrected, per se, or they've come back from holiday, basically. Yeah. I was just going to say, was that when, when it disappeared, was there any sign of why that it had disappeared or was there any indication that maybe they had been sort of forcibly removed? No. We or did all, it just blink out of existence? We're all sort of waiting for like the FBI to say they'd done a takedown or something like that, but nothing ever happened. They've gone on holiday before, so it could literally be they went on a summer holiday. <laughs> Interesting. We did see a correlation or an inverse correlation in an increase in, in fair IT, didn't we, as a, as a threat? Uh, the, yeah, but that was more because Emotet was gone. That was just the next biggest thing. It was There wasn't, wasn't really a correlation that it went and therefore this went up. It was just the next biggest thing with Emotet gone. Mm. Just taking advantage of a gap in the market yeah, there, exactly. I guess, yeah. So how is it that organisations will get affected? So initially, um, Emotet infections, or rather the um, prim primary attack delivery vector for Emotet is email, via phishing email, in fact. Um, and the way that this is, is delivered or, or, or infects a victim is fundamentally um, a weaponized, macro-enabled Word document is delivered via phishing email, potentially either attached to the email or via a link okay. um, within that email that links off to try to sort of bypass attachment scanning as an example. Once that document is opened and the user enables macros, mm -hmm. that then launches um, th those macro scripts then launch a couple of instances of command prompt that kind of piece together some obfuscated code. That launches PowerShell and PowerShell goes off and connects to the C2 server and pulls down um, a malicious executable which is, in fact, a motet. So by that point, the victim has actually become infected by a motet. Okay, and so once they're infected, then what happens? So firstly, a motet will look to call back to a, a command and control server. So that's right. a, a server managed by the attacker that could be used to issue instructions down to those infected machines. Fundamentally, uh, it registers itself as part of the motet botnet, and it actually checks initially to see if there are any later versions of the Emotet payload that it can then pull down and execute. So it makes sure that it's running on the most up-to-date version. Um, once it's called back to its command and control server, it then looks to spread to any and all devices that it can see on the network, um, typically leveraging um, a, a, a huge password list, um, trying to exploit um, sort of uh, credentials there that it's, that it's attempting, and also using things like SMB to, to drop itself and propagate um, as widespread throughout the network as it possibly can. Once it's spread, it then steals data from those infected machines, um, things like usernames, passwords, email addresses as well, and actually leverages those email addresses to pivot the infection and look to infect other organisations yeah. as well. It also steals a lot of emails as well. They have a module for stealing emails because some of the spam campaigns they've been doing, the ones they came back with last week, they are replying to an existing legitimate email thread from the victim. So you receive an email... It has a new, you know, new response at the top saying, "Hey, can you click this invoice?" Uh, and you scroll down it, and you can see it's your conversation from three months ago. So it's a very mm, sneaky way. Fiendish, yeah, yeah. That's, yeah. Very I sinister. hate it when they're that good. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that kind of that kind of gives an indication of, uh, in fact, I should have mentioned at the beginning that Emotet is kind of the definitive, professional and organised piece of malware that we're seeing at the moment it is right. it is very um it's very sort of scalable and and, and very organized in its approach as we said yeah. um so yeah once it once it's stolen those emails and and pivoted the infection tried to infect other organizations as well from the compromised domain from inside the compromised domain mm -hmm. i might add um it it then looks to 
um, download and execute a malicious payload. And it's at this stage that Emotep really gets its kind of reputation as being a very persistent threat in that once it's propagated throughout the network and it's reached this stage of downloading and executing other malicious payloads or other pieces of malware, they might look to download, download and execute TrickBot, for example, which once again then propagates throughout the network, yeah. this time leveraging Eternal Blue and software vulnerabilities in order to spread to other network devices in the same fashion. Um, and then as well, as an, uh, it may look to download and execute things like targeted ransomware, like Ryark, for example, um, which I mentioned the uh, sort of cost of an attack or an outbreak to remediate from an outbreak of a motet is about a million dollars calculated at up to a million dollars in fact yeah. um for example in, a, in the case of ryak as we spoke about last time that's more in the realms of sort of two to five million as well so yeah that that one million dollar estimate from uh, homeland security doesn't include ransom demands which mm. have skyrocketed recently yeah this is it so it's at this point that it's it's persistent. It's, it's, it's the attacker's foothold into the environment. They have a motet leverages their foothold and they could download and execute fundamentally whatever they want mm -hmm. at this point. And unfortunately, at this stage, there's there's kind of two eventualities out of this situation. And then eventuality number one is that there's a successful infection, like a Iraq infection, for example. The organization is unfortunately crippled and, and, and you know, brought to its knees from a cyber perspective. Or option two is that somebody or something comes in and kicks the attacker off the network, gets rid of a MoTeC, gets rid of the underlying threat like tr TrickBot um, and, and is able to fully kick the attacker so they no longer have that foothold in. So if you've got an Emotet infection and Emotet downloads Ryuk and Ryuk then encrypts everything, if you pay the ransom to get everything decrypted, have you then brought yourself back to a situation where you've got a network full of Emotet. Yeah, so it's not quite like that. So Emotet is the delivery system for malware like TrickBot. Yeah. TrickBot is an equally uh, advanced worm that primarily steals money from users' bank accounts. It's very good at doing that. But then it also includes other modules for stealing credentials and uh, executing PowerShell on the machines. It's that PowerShell that connects to, we discussed this in episode eight, um, it's that PowerShell that connects to um, servers hosting things like PowerShell Empire or Cobalt Strike. That access is then what allows the attackers in to manually deploy Riot ransomware on okay. the machines. And then, yeah, once, it, or if you choose to pay the decryption demand, the ransom demand, um, all that is going to do is get your encrypted files back. And as Riot typically only targets servers... The rest of your endpoint estate that's still infected with Emotet and Trickbot mm. is still infected with Emotet and Trickbot. So but you even still the, have so, to deal but with the that. machines themselves that have, let's say, you get Trickbot on a server, and that, and then you get Ryuk on that server, and Ryuk encrypts that server, and then you decrypt it. You pay the ransom, you decrypt it. You've got Trickbot. You've still got Trickbot on that server. Yes, you potentially still do, and even if you don't, if it's still widespread on your endpoints, you're going to get it. Are going to yeah, yeah. get it again anyway. Yeah. Uh, so I've got another question about the C2 servers. So the C2 servers uh, sort of blinked out of existence in June, disappeared. But everybody who had Emotet still had Emotet. They just didn't have a command and control server to talk to. So what did those Emotets do? Did they carry on spreading? Did they carry on doing horrible things to people? Or did they just yeah sit they, there dormant and then reconnect with the C2 servers when they came back? They were basically not getting 
new updates. Yeah. So no new axes. No patches for those. Exactly. So if it was an unprotected machine, it was still going to be infected. It was still going to be doing everything Emotech was trying to do. TrickBot didn't go down for summer. So if it was trying to pull down TrickBot, it would still be pulling down TrickBot. Um, it's just that without those constant updates yeah. that on a protected machine, you know, it's it's not going to last long. So, And when we say constant updates, we're not talking about like monthly no, updates, are we? We're talking about... Imitate and TripBot um, are updated multiple times a day. Hundreds of new axes we see every week. New IP addresses for compromised sites for the call home addresses. It is a 24-7, when they're not on holiday, a 24-7 operation. No wonder they needed a holiday. Yeah. I think they'd have a cover for their holiday. <laughs> I, I, I suspect they're quite suspicious of new people. <laughs> but I, I think... I, I, oh God, I hate that thing on Twitter where people say, let that sink in. But I, for me, this is like... Genuinely, let, let that, that sink, sink in. in. We talk about like big, sophisticated pieces of software like Google Chrome or Firefox that operate on month-long or six-week update schedules. As like that's a furious pace of updating. And Peter, you're saying it's four or five times a day. Well, it is multiple times a day. I don't have the numbers off the top of my head. So I think we saw back in January 2019, we saw about 300 unique payloads variants of Emotet. Per day in our labs team. Yeah, it is it is incredible. But they have the advantage of not caring if it breaks someone's system. They don't have to make something that's stable and That's and true, but, I mean, this is not some guy in his bedroom. No, could be a We girl. can, you know, I mean, maybe maybe he's the best programmer ever. But yeah, No, this it, like, is not this a one-man team no. or one-woman team. This is a large criminal network, yeah. Mm. And do we know, so, um, Ben, when you were talking about Emotet, it sort of pulls down TrickBot, or are these things connected, or is this simply for hire? Is it is it is a criminal grant gang operating a bunch of different types of malware and just looking for the most appropriate one, or is it are they just is there a group of criminals out there who've just selling access to people's computers? So I guess it's a case of whatever their actions and objective are. So if we look at the the cyber kill chain, the last stage of the cyber kill chain is for the attack of the actions and objective. What fundamentally are they looking to achieve by this attack? Yeah. And if their actions and objective are to issue or rather successfully infect with a targeted ransomware attack, they might try Ryak. If Ryak fails for whatever reason, they might try some other target piece of targeted ransomware, for example. So they can fundamentally, as per the framework of Emotet, yeah. Download and execute whatever malicious payload they wanted. But to. The, the, what I'm well, saying is, it's the people who are running Emotet might not care. Mm. Like if you pay them, well, if you if what's you, the business model? Do we know? Yeah, well, so you would have to ask them, <laughs> unfortunately. Um, but the if concept you're listening of a, to the podcast, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I think I think they're on holiday. Oh, no, they just come back. The, the concept of a botnet is you you build your botnet and then you hire out sections of it. That's yeah. generally how botnets work. Um, and with Emotet, we do believe that you know the Trickbox gang, in the, the Drydex gang, who are also using Emotet, we do believe there is some sort of financial arrangement between these two groups or three groups. Um, but unlike other botnets, it seems to be fairly exclusive to these okay. high-end yeah. groups. It's not like anyone can use it. Okay. So how can organisations or people protect themselves against it? That's a great question. And I think the sort of... The, the simple answer is that by adopting a, a multi-layered security strategy within an organization, i.e. 
providing or protecting endpoints and servers with the the best next generation endpoint server protection, as well as leveraging tool sets like EDR and and services like MTR, for example, to to be able to identify suspicious and potentially underlying threats like a motet in an environment mm -hmm. that can provide the best possible chance at both identifying and protecting against a motet. Right. Okay. Um, in terms of sort of three key pieces of advice around this space, I guess um, it, it, it's all been repeated before, but you know, if, if you're using endpoint protection, ensure it's kept up to date um, and you have best practice implemented with that solution. Um, I, if you have any unprotected machines in your environment, identify them early before, unfortunately, potentially too late. Identify them and, and, and obviously look to protect those machines as well. So ensure that there is endpoint protection rolled out across all the endpoints and servers within your environment. Um, obviously coinciding as well with network security and other layers um, of security added on top. And of course, as well, patch early, patch often, um, as, as a sort of phrase. As we said before, you know, TrickBot leverages Eternal Blue, which is a particular vulnerability in Microsoft's SMB technology, server message block technology. Um, and yes, it, it was from 2017. However, there are still unpatched machines yeah. today. And it's SMB yet. version one. Yeah. Yes, and exactly. we're up to version three on SMB, yeah. aren't we? So yeah, so uh, my role of instant response, I mean, I have to come into these networks that have already been hit and trying to understand what's happened. And for Emotet, it's always, always comes down to three main things. The victim had unprotected machines on their network for whatever reason. They put them on, they forgot to install antivirus, uh, they got rid of it for some other reason, they, you know, they rebuilt it, forgot to put it on, whatever the reason is unprotected machines, those then become infected and they're just a host. They just are constantly getting updated, constantly trying to infect the rest of the network. And then you've got customers or people that are not following best practice advice from their security vendor, don't have all the features enabled, even the ones they've paid for sometimes they haven't got them enabled. And of course, as you say, unpatched using Eternal Blue to spread. It's the common silly mistakes really that are easy for me to explain but i understand obviously harder in real life to actually fix but this is how they succeed yeah so and if someone is infected if an organization is infected what what can they do so it. they need to deal with it quickly yeah that's right. the main advice that's it in fact we do actually have a, a knowledge base article um directly for yeah, this if you so search sophos emotet so kb127218 from the top of my head we can put it in the uh yeah. show notes if you search sophos emotet you'll find stuff yeah okay mm. thanks ben peter you wanna talk you wanna talk about <laughs> wanna cry I do. Wanna. I know it wasn't even intentional, but I liked it. Um, uh, you released some research this week, didn't you, about WannaCry? Yes. So um, WannaCry, as I'm sure many people will still remember, but let's just cover it briefly. So on May 12th, 2017, this new sort of virus or worm ransomware started spreading around the globe, causing a lot of headlines, causing a lot of pain. Um, a lot of files getting encrypted. I think the numbers at the time were sort of 200,000 machines mm. encrypted and stuff like that. Um, and it quickly became uh, known that it was using this Eternal Blue vulnerability in Microsoft SMB, uh, and um, which for people that aren't aware was a sort of allegedly NSA yeah. NSA or CIA? NSA. NSA. Um, sort of hacking tool that was stolen by a group called the Shadow Brokers and then leaked. Um, there was a patch available, I think, two months prior to WannaCry. So 
it didn't need to happen mm. if people had patched. Um, but of course, as we know, not everyone patches straight away. So it started spreading, started causing a lot of damage. And then uh, two researchers in the UK, two security researchers, they noticed a bit of the code that became known as the kill switch. It basically said, go to this really long URL, and if you get a response, exit. Don't launch the attack. And the theory was that uh, if you run malware in a sandbox environment, mm. those sandbox environments will often pretend to sort of be on the internet or a test, right. um, a sort of a researcher's environment. They will pretend to be on the internet. So if a malware says, I want to connect to this URL, they say, yeah, sure, you can. And therefore, the creators of WannaCry can use that as a test to see if they're in a sandbox because they should never get a response from that URL. Yeah. And therefore, they would exit if they do. Mm -hmm. And what um, these two researchers did was they just went and registered that mm -hmm. URL. And that meant it effectively stopped the attack because every WannaCry infected machine, the first thing it does is checks for this URL, gets the response and exits. Problem uh, over. And all of this happened in a matter of hours, didn't it? Um, I forget if... I think they registered it the same day. It was either the same day or the, the following day. I forget the exact details. But, um, yeah, so they became known as the sort of WannaCry heroes. And um, everyone thought, well, that's it. Done and dusted. WannaCry is uh, over. Of course, there was... In the next few days, there was um, people finding samples that didn't look for the same URL or didn't have the kill switch. So there was a lot of concerns that there may be a second wave. The attackers may come back, they realise their mistake and just launch again. But it didn't really happen. It all sort of went quiet. But two years later, we're looking at the data we get from um, software installs where detect a bit of malware, we get a little bit of telemetry that says, yep, look, this malware's just been detected. And we use that to create new detections and track uh, different groups. And we're still seeing hundreds of thousands, millions of WannaCry detections every month. So if it's if we're still seeing all that, why are we not hearing about it the same way? There was this huge, big press thing in, in 2017. Why has it kind of gone quiet? Yeah, well, that was the exact question we were asking ourselves. Why... So, I mean, the data we started looking at was from the original, was from the last three months of 2018. It's a bit old now, but we've, it's still going on. Unfortunately, we've checked with the latest data as well. But in that three month period, so October to the end of um, 2018, it was over 5 million detections we saw. And we couldn't understand because surely everyone's patched by now so it's why, two years on why mm. is nobody noticing this because yeah. on, on was it may the on may the 12th 2017 WannaCry spreads around the world and it's running into big companies and it's encrypting all the machines yeah. in these companies like mm. it's it's amazingly why, visible why is no one complaining about data being encrypted why is yeah. no one complaining about ransom yeah. notes and why is it even spreading at all why is the kill switch apparently not working so we started looking into it and we know that the kill switch is still working and we know that there are versions of WannaCry out there that are still connecting to it. So um, the, the research company or the security company that owns that URL, they said earlier, uh, I think it was in June, in I think it was one week in June this year, they stopped 60 million 
wow. WannaCry infections because they could see 60 million connections to the real kill switch. So there is still mm. a lot of infected machines out there. I believe they said most Hope of them are in Hope someone's got a calendar entry for renewing that domain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 Do yes. not forget well, to renew the, the, the WannaCry yeah. kill switch domain. May the 12th. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. May the 12th be with you. Yeah, so I mean if you are one of these um, companies or computers that has the want a crystal on it and it is only the fact that it's got an internet connection is able to access that url that's keeping you safe mm. and if that you know if you lose internet or that url does go down you're going to see a lot of encryption but that wasn't what we were discovering so we we knew the kill switch was there so we couldn't understand why it wasn't working in all the detections we get so we concentrated on a detection called cxmal forward slash wanna dash a and what that detection is, is on a Sophos-protected machine where the the owner of the machine hasn't patched it against Eternal Blue. So it's an unpatched machine, but it has Sophos on there. And WannaCry tries to infect it. Mm -hmm. So another infected machine tries to drop the WannaCry executable onto this Sophos-protected machine. Sophos sees it's being exploited, sees the file being dropped onto the machine, knows it's WannaCry, get rid of it, get, gets rid of it, that machine is protected, no harm done. Right. Okay, attack is stopped. But you've still got the infected machine mm. somewhere. So from that data, we could get the, the hash values of these files. And we went and checked the hashes, expecting it to all be the one hash for WannaCry. It was a couple of hashes, but we're expecting it to be this one hash. And in that three and a half, uh, three months of data, we found actually over 12,500 different hashes. And in fact, the true WannaCry of five, I think it was 5.1 million detections, was only seen 40 times, 4-0. Oh, really? Which is so small, it could clearly just mm. be admins testing. So that's 12,000 different types of WannaCry? 12,000 technically unique files because the hash is different. Could be wow. because yeah. one's got an extra space in the code somewhere, but technically they are unique. Yes. But, yeah. Um, so we started trying to get as many of these samples as we could, and unfortunately we found out that most of them are so extremely rare that we could only get hold of, um, I think it was 2,725. And we looked at those and we quickly realised that in all 2,725, none of them checked for a kill switch anymore. Ah. It had been commented out, it had been jumped over in the code, the URL had been changed. Basically, they had been altered in a very, very basic or amateur way. It wasn't that the files had been recompiled by the original creators. They had basically used a thing called a hex editor and just switched a few bytes, effectively mm -hmm. ch changing these files so they didn't have a kill switch anymore and it would just run the malware regardless. Yep. So immediately we realised, well, that answers the question of why the kill switch is not working in these scenarios. But it still doesn't answer the question of why is no one complaining about the encryption? Why are no files getting encrypted? So the way WannaCry works is once it's dropped onto a machine, the executable runs, it checks the kill switch, if or if it, if it does check for a kill switch, and if it can't get to it, then it executes the attack. So without the kill switch, it just executes the attack. And that part involves dropping a password-protected zip file onto the machine. That zip file contains all the parts for the encryption, for the ransomware. The zip file was corrupted in, again, all 2,725 samples we looked at, ah. the mm. archive was corrupted. And this is where all the different hashes come from because the corruption was yeah. different. 
and therefore a unique yeah. hash. Yeah. So we don't know how this corruption happened. Um, you can imagine with the sheer amount of bytes being copied across the network that you know if 0.01% gets corrupted, then over time you're just going to get more and more of these corrupted files being spread around the network. That's the kind of the only theory we've got really for that. Is it, is it possible that... So obviously the way you... If you were a criminal, what you'd want to do is you'd want to have the source code, you'd want to compile a new version of WannaCry. But actually what you're saying is that somebody out there was actually sort of poking around in the bits and bytes, flipping them over, trying to get it to behave in a different way. They're, they're if not working blind, they're they're certainly working with blinkers on when they do that. Is it possible that in their sort of poking around trying to find the bit that's the kill switch, they accidentally poked a hole in the zip file as mm. well? Possibly. Yeah, that could easily be an answer as well. I'm annoyed I didn't think of that before now, actually. <laughs> well done. <laughs> to be fair, I read it on Twitter. Oh, right. Okay. <laughs> Don't take that for um, Yeah, so we, we then actually... So we knew the answer. So mm -hmm. no kill switch, corrupt archive. That explains a lot. But then we noticed that if we looked at the hashes and how many times each individual hash had been seen or been detected, we realised that um, the sort of top 10 accounted for about, I think it was about 70% of detections. Mm. And the top three accounted for about 50% of all detections. Mm. So we started looking at these top 10 a bit closer. And we realised that the top three... Their archives were not just corrupt, but they were corrupt in exactly the same way. They were the same corrupt archive. And the only difference between these three was how the kill switch had been removed, which is very mm. interesting because mm. it means that someone got a copy of the one with the corrupt archive, removed the kill switch, someone got another copy of that same file and removed it in a different way. Yeah. So they're all working on the same file. So it wasn't one that was spreading around. It was one that was being, let's say, handed around. You know, because Wow. So yeah. this suggests that the corruption in the archive happened fairly early. Yes. So that's what we um we found. We basically just by Googling the um the hashes, the SHA two five sixes, and we found people talking about those very samples. Mm -hmm. So on May fourteenth, a researcher um by Matt Suchet, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that right, but Matt Suchet, uh, he was given a copy of a sample from the researchers at Kaspersky. And he had a look at that, and he discovered that the kill switch had been removed and that the archive was corrupted. And he tweeted about it, and there was a blog post, and it was available on VirusTotal. So it was obviously going to be looked at by other people as well. And we realised that that sample that he was talking about is now the one that is seen at the top of our top 10. The most detected WannaCry file wow. in existence is that one that was discovered two days later with that corrupt archive. So what we can sort of summarise is that whoever edited that file, when Matt analysed it and sort of spread the news that it existed someone else probably got a copy of it and changed how the kill switch was done mm. and then someone else did it as well or maybe it was all one person. And because those files now so effectively spread, they're not held back by the kill switch, so they don't have to worry about that. They don't encrypt any files, so they don't draw any attention to them. There's no users complaining about lost data, there's no yeah. admins going, oh, I'm just going to wipe this machine. 
So they are an evolved, if you want to call it that, variant of WannaCry um, that is actually not that dangerous because it's not encrypting your data, um, but it is far more prevalent. As it's wonderfully biological, mm. isn't it? Yeah. Like, you know, it's that, that whole thing about parasites evolving so they don't kill the host. Exactly. You know, the original one was so virulent and so bad that yeah. it attracted all this activity and it was stamped out very, very quickly. And mm. actually since then, you've got this much less dangerous but equally virulent variant, which is, in terms of infections, far more widespread, far more persistent and far more successful. Yeah. And if you're an admin that's looking at your network and saying, well, I don't have any connections to the kill switch domain, therefore I'm not infected, mm. that is no longer true. Mm. In fact, it was not true for two years, basically. So one of the questions we got asked when we released this research is, why do I care? Why should I care if this doesn't do any harm? Well, you've got to think of the bigger picture here. The fact that you have this on your network yeah. means you have unpatched yeah. machines. And if you haven't patched against WannaCry or Eternal Blue uh, in two years, there's no way you've patched against anything. No one patches mm. against everything but Eternal Blue. So, so you haven't, you haven't to go back to Ben's story, you haven't patched against TrickBot. You haven't patched against TrickBot. Yep. Yeah. As well as many other bits of malware that mm. use Eternal Blue. So you are at a huge risk if you have this. So what mm. is your advice to users then, Patch? Yeah, so um, again, if you search Sophos WannaCry, you'll find some advice on how you can help identify the machines that are actually causing this on your network. Um, because in the investigations uh, we did, it was, again, again like Emotet and TripBot, it was unprotected machines that were on the network and had been forgotten about. So you've got to identify those machines. You've got to get them protected. Because even if you've got... If you, even if you go and patch all the machines you know about, those other infected machines are still out there because they're the ones you don't know about. So you've got to yeah. go find them. Okay. Thanks, Peter. Uh, Mark, over to you. Right. So that's enough uh, lightweight stuff. We're going to get into some real, the real me meaty, deep. heavyweight yeah. cybersecurity now. And we're going to talk about Instagram phishing. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, guys, if I lose you at any point, don't be afraid to just... Just put your hand up and say, could you explain that, please, Mark? OK, All right, I'm speaking okay. to Ben and Peter Great. particularly here. Thank hey! You. <laughs> <laughs> Look, I know, I, know, I know I don't have anything to teach you about Instagram. I'm a I'm technical expecting... expert. <laughs> so Instagram is a very uh, popular social media app. Um, and therein, that's the extent of my knowledge. You're on <laughs> it. Mark's on it. <laughs> Under a secret, secret name. Yeah. Uh, so I'll, be, I'll, tell you, I'll start by telling you about the uh, the phishing email. So uh, this is a new phishing email that we've seen uh, and mimicking emails from Instagram. And it reads, hi, we sorry, we have found content in your account that will violate our copyright laws. We, your account, will be suspended within 24 hours. If you think we've made a mistake, please click the copyright objection form button and fill out the form. We will feed back to you by email 24 hours after completing the form. And the email contains the appropriate branding, the small print that you'd expect to see in the real thing. Now, you probably picked up when I was reading it, there's a couple of very obvious... I know, I think you should have done it in an accent. <laughs> it would have been nice. <laughs> what, what kind of accent do you think I should have read it in? 
I'm going to say, I think Russian would have been quite nice. Not because it's, I mean, who knows where it's from. But I just, I can imagine you with a Russian accent. Do you want to try it now? Do you want to do the rest of the story in Russian? This just got very weird. Anyway. I'm just so, going to plough on with the story okay. if that's okay. Um, yeah, okay, so the email, it's got all the, the kind of branding and the small print and the things that make it look like Instagram. And I think when you read out what it says, mm-hmm. it's a bit like the kind of, it's a bit like the hoaxes video that we did last week. When you read it out, it sounds a lot weirder than if you just look at it and read it. Yeah. Because I don't imagine people are going to read these things particularly carefully. No, because um, they get There's a an alarming message. Yeah, and there's a big, panic. Uh, yeah, and there's a big blue button. It's very obvious what you have to do. Because, um, I mean, like all good social engineering... It works because it's plausible, okay? Yeah. So it looks right, it feels right, and it's got one foot in reality. So I went and had a look, and there is actually a form on Instagram where you can report copyright infringement. So it's not where you go and dispute copyright infringement. Yeah. But I guess the point is that copyright infringement and Instagram is a real thing. Yeah. So it might be something that you've heard of, and even if you haven't heard of it, it's not implausible. Yeah. Yeah. You can imagine with all the photos on there that copyright is probably something that. Well, they... and how many people share memes and all that exactly. stuff. Exactly. Even that's if not you theirs. don't understand it, they're saying they're going to suspend your account. Yes. It's going to get your attention. And that's the that's yeah. the other kind of key to social engineering, isn't it? That there's a reason for you to act with haste. So you can't ignore this. You can't put it away. And also, you know, as you said, Anna, it sort of puts you in a slight panic. So perhaps you're not paying attention in the way that you would if. And it's the 20th email that you've had in the last hour, so it's just, yeah, everyone's in a hurry. Um, And as you said, Peter, nobody wants to be locked out of their Instagram account. Let alone Peter. I wouldn't care. If Peter had an Instagram account, he absolutely wouldn't want to be locked out of it. (laughs) Um, It's easy to be glib about this, but there are obviously people now who make their living from having Instagram accounts. I mean, it's it's of importance to a very large number of people, but it's of genuine financial importance mm. to a whole industry of people you know the so-called influencers yeah um and so being locked out of your instagram account if you're one of those people is having your business suspended for sure um as you might expect the email links through to a web page the web page of course now uses https so it's got that little padlock icon um it's a believable looking domain like the last instagram uh, fish that we talked about a month or so ago it's on a .cf domain but if you're looking on a phone, you're not going to see the .cf at the end. Um, it uses the words Instagram and copyright in the domain, and the domain is left stuffed. So basically, there's loads and loads and loads of words like Instagram and copyright infringement that all look like the thing that you're worried about. Um, and, and that's what you're going to see. So it's kind of believable enough. Uh, and then the page that you get to reinforces the message that you saw in the email. It offers you an appeal button. Uh, and if you click it, you get shown a very short web form that asks for your date of birth, your username and your password. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, while it sends off the username and password to the fishers, it discards the date of birth. Yeah. So the date of birth isn't there because they're trying to fish your date of birth. It's just there because it makes it look more believable mm. because age restrictions are a thing yeah. in some uh, geographies. Interesting. Uh, and then if you do that, if you do enter your username and password, then there's a loading icon and then a very nice friendly green tick and some confirmation text that your bogus defence against this bogus copyright uh, claim has been successfully submitted. And then before you have too long to look at that, you're automatically forwarded through to a real Instagram login page. So the email has got a couple of very obvious errors in it which some people are going to see and they're going to catch. But the actual, the whole chain of events from the email through these various 
iterations of these web pages is actually really slick. Mm. Uh, and my background is in part in user interface design. Uh, and in user interface design, we talk about things like visibility, affordance and feedback and information sent. And this the sort of feedback that you have to give users to tell them, yes, the decision that you made is the right decision. You're on the right track. The next thing you need to do is that it needs to be obvious what the next thing you do is, you know, and you that's communicated through what you say, but it's also communicated through design and mm-hmm. your use of colour and things like this. Um, and all I can say about this is it's very, very well put together. Yeah. So, you know, we talk about Emotep being very, very sophisticated malware. This is this is a simple thing. You're trying to get someone to hand over their username and password. But for what it is, it is also executed yeah. in a very, very sophisticated way. But the sophistication isn't in uh, ones and zeros. It's in the way it's been mm-hmm. uh, thought through. So if somebody told me they had fallen for this, I would have no problem believing that they had or yeah. wondering why. So you mentioned that there, this is the second Instagram yeah. fish we've written up lately. Can you just go through what happened on that one? That was about two-factor authentication, wasn't it? It was. It was, uh, it was similar to this... It, a similar level of skullduggery, right. if you like, and attention to detail. So in that uh, phishing attempt, the email uh, said that uh, somebody had attempted to access your Instagram account and you needed to re-authenticate yourself and here's a six-digit code that you need to enter in order to re-authenticate yourself. Right, okay. So again, believable scenario, mm-hmm. that sort of thing does happen. Companies like Instagram, Google, they do send you emails mm-hmm. to, set, to say that people have been trying to access your accounts yep. or something weird's happened. Um, and they do send 2FA codes. And that one was uh, particularly devilish because obviously we tell people to use two-factor authentication to defend themselves against this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and a bit like the copyright claim, I think they both fall into this sort of weird grey area where lots of people will know something about those things, Yeah. but probably not in great detail. So you may have heard of two-factor authentication being important. You mm-hmm. may have seen those six-digit codes. And actually, if you haven't, it still kind of looks, it looks real. Well, it's like a security alert. Yeah, it's it, like a, it, yeah. Yes, it has the smell Ooh, of security about yeah. it. And then I think with copyright, uh, I don't think lots of people understand copyright law, but I think lots of people understand that copyright law is a thing. Yeah. And so it's not... And as Peter said, yeah. you know, you, people will be panicking that they'll get locked out of their Exactly, account. yeah. So, Mark, I'm going to play devil's advocate a little bit here because yeah. I partially know the answer, but this may just come from my sheer lack of interest in having an Instagram account. But, <laughs> but all the pictures why would that you I, can see. Why, why would I care if someone had access to my Instagram account? Um, I so fished you, you realise. Yeah. I think there's, there's two answers to that. And the first answer is you don't need to know why somebody wants to have access to your Instagram account. The fact is if somebody's trying as hard as this or as hard as they were with the 2FA fish to get access to your Instagram account, then it's because they think they can make money from it. And so I would be much less worried about how they can monetize that than the fact that they want to in the first place. Yep. The, the fact that there's value in your Instagram account is reflected in the effort that people will put into taking it from you. But yes, of course, there are things that you can do with someone's Instagram account. So uh, firstly, there are things in the Instagram account themselves that may be of value. So there's information that uh, an attacker could use for more social engineering. Uh, the username and password are of value because those can be used for credential stuffing attacks on other services. Mm-hmm. So there's enough password reuse out there that if I can get your Instagram password, there's a good chance that that'll work on Facebook. There's a good chance mm-hmm. that'll work on Twitter and a whole bunch of other places as well. 
But I, I put IN at the end of my Instagram <laughs> password. No, so that's no one would figure out that it's FB for my Facebook one. <laughs> um, I think he's joking. And that's just... That's just uh, what they can do with the information they get from you if they get your account. But obviously, if I uh, if somebody takes over your account, that's also a vantage point then to take over other people's accounts or to run scams on other people. Mm. So you, let's say you had an Instagram account, Peter, you would then presumably be at the network of a group of other people. You know, people that you've decided to follow and people that follow you. And there's you've increased your trust with that group, and so that's a great vantage point for an attacker to to run things like scams because it obviously instead of this it being an email out of the blue it is a message from peter mm-hmm. uh, and then also i think finally there is um there is potentially the opportunity for instagram accounts to be held to ransom so as we said earlier instagram accounts are businesses yeah. for some people and we know that the criminals have got no qualms at all about holding businesses to ransom with ransomware. They've got no qualms about holding businesses to ransom with DDoS attacks. There's no reason to think that they wouldn't do the same thing if they could get hold of your Instagram account as well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So is it particularly Instagram users then are, that are being targeted by phishing or is it just that we happen to have come across these? Um, like, the only it, reason that we're Twitter? talking about this one yeah. is just because it is so sort of interestingly well executed yeah but uh you know phishing is happening all the yeah. time uh using and abusing all the brands that you know uh, yeah. amazon ups you know using all sorts of different uh, techniques so what's your advice then mark to end it uh so my number one piece of advice is get a password manager so right. we talk about pass manager, password managers all the time because they're very good at uh well so the pieces of software that create and remember and uh, write out complex passwords for you yeah so you don't have to worry about weird password creation rules let the software do that for mm-hmm. you um one of the side benefits of using a password manager is it won't type your password into the wrong website yeah or the wrong app because it'll autofill for you if you if you're logged into your password manager and then you go to a website yeah it'll autofill it so for you, you. it'll yeah. either autofill or you can say fill this in with the correct password yeah for this website yeah but in either in either case it's not going to put the wrong password in no because this is not the right website. Because this is not the right website. Yeah. Um, so that's a great phishing defense. Yeah. So get a password manager. Um, and then we get into the slightly fuzzier bits of advice. So I recommend that you don't click on login links in emails. Yeah. I can't say for sure that you'll never get a legitimate login link in an email. Mm-hmm. But, you know, exercise an abundance of caution don't click on those login links. And if you're an organisation and you're sending out emails, please don't send people emails with login links in. Let's all agree yeah. that we're going to make these fishers look suspicious because they've got login links in them. Yeah, I actually got one this morning. I'm not going to name the retailer, but it was a big one. And uh-huh. it took me about 10 minutes to decide if it was a phishing email or not. And it was not, but yeah. yeah. Did you just hover over the link for 10 minutes, but thinking really hard? I, honestly, I did. <laughs> <laughs> email wasn't meant to be this difficult, was it? Yeah. And then the last piece of advice is look for obvious errors and understand why you're looking for obvious errors. So if you see one, that's a bit of a giveaway. If you read the text in this email very closely, you probably would have decided it was a fish. But then the absence of obvious errors doesn't mean that it's not a fish. So understand what you're looking for. And that includes the address bar, by the way. So again, if you look very, very closely at the address bar um, on the website that this fish linked you to you would have seen it wasn't an instagram.com 
but you do have to pay close attention to it in order to spot that. Yeah. Mm. And I think for so for our listeners, um, those three core steps are very effective at protecting themselves against falling mm-hmm. victim to, to phishing campaigns yeah. such as this. Within an organisation, obviously, unless you explicitly go and talk to every single employee potentially or every single user within that environment, that could be quite difficult to control effectively as well yeah. and to encourage that. However, there are phishing simulation and training platforms which can achieve exactly this, such as Sophos Fish Threat, which actually enables controlled phishing simulation of these campaigns and then you uh, you can identify users that are putting the organization at risk and potentially going to fall victims phishing email campaigns and automatically enroll them onto training so they know what to look for in a, in a fish and they can follow those guidance steps. So this is exposing people to things that are fishes or look like fishes in a contr- in a in a controlled environment exactly, yeah. where they can practice Yes, and full of templates you can send in like LinkedIn spam campaigns and see what users click on them, what users enter credentials. And of course, instead of stealing their credentials, you direct them to training instead. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Cool. Thanks, everyone. As always, it's been a pleasure. Mark, where can we find you on social media? You can find me at Mark Stockley and at Internet of Hens, both of them on Twitter. Ben? At Ben Crypting on Twitter. Peter? Uh, At Alt Shift Print Screen on Twitter. And only Twitter? Not Instagram. Instagram. Definitely not Instagram. I'm at Ella Breeding on Twitter and we are at Naked Security on Twitter and Instagram. We're also on Facebook where we do weekly Facebook Lives. Uh, Mark and I are recording one today, actually. What are we doing again? Uh, We're talking about your uh, Instagram fish. Excellent. Um, Sure you don't want to get Peter on for that? Maybe. He knows about Instagram. (laughs) (laughs) Um, If you like our podcast, please rate and review. It helps other people to find us and also it's nice for us to read. If you don't like it, don't don't bother you can tweet us at Naked Security with your suggestions or questions for the podcast or you can email us at tips at and until next time stay, stay secure, secure.